0: Good evening. Is that live? Can they see me doing that? <laughs> oh, well, it is what it is. <clears throat> I'm encouraged to be here as well. This is the third or fourth conference I've done in a few weeks. So I've been in Pennsylvania, in Oklahoma, um, Birmingham, Alabama, Nashville, Tennessee. We got back from Nashville on Sunday night, Monday morning-ish, and then here. So uh, I'm only saying that to say that some people are going whoa you know i'm like yeah it sounds kind of crazy but what sounds crazy is actually what used to be normal you know with traveling and such as that but it's good to know that i'm here in connecticut and things are open enough where we can come together and have a conference and and i'm also um want to say that i agree with what james said that the ability to come together and encourage one another in spiritual things is a vital thing in these times in which we're living, and so good that we can do this. So I thank those that uh, organized and arranged and prayed for and provided for us to have this time of conference. I don't thank them as much for um, assigning me uh, uh, the last half of the book of Daniel to do in two and a half days or whatever it is, but be that as it may, we'll just trust the Lord. Um, James is a lot more astute than... um, now, I don't want to say he's more astute than what I thought he might have been. That wouldn't sound right. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, he, uh, he did remind me uh, this evening earlier that he has learned from me. And he's learned one very essential thing if he never learned anything else. And it's what I often call the first rule of preaching. Unfortunately, some people never learn it. And the first rule of preaching that I try to pass on is when the plane runs out of gas you go ahead and land the plane. You don't have to keep circling the airport, okay? And as I say, some preachers never learn that rule. So if James has learned that, that's a that's a very good thing. And so I say that too because uh, I confess it's been a very long day and uh, a lot of hours in travel. But we'll trust the Lord who I've always taken confidence not in what I have to give or what I can do but in his ability his strength is made perfect in weakness. And so I lean heavily upon that and uh we'll trust him tonight for that. <clears throat> Excuse me along with that I have asked James if he's done it correctly. I'm not so sure that he has but he may have. Um I've placed uh, some books and pamphlets in the foyer there or he has. Uh, Place them there, and due to spatial limitations, i couldn't bring that many with me, but a few of the books that I wrote here and was published uh, a year or so ago, and along with that, there's five pamphlets now they all look the same almost, but they're not exactly the same so there's five in the series, and if you look carefully, it'll say one, two, three, four, five. but they're all on the subject of how we can know that the Bible is true the reliability of Scripture, how we can trust that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. So there should be those out there. You, they're standalone. You don't have to take all five. You can feel free to take all five. If there's anything there that, um, well, if you don't get something that was supposed to be there, you contact me and I'll be sure to send it to you. Along with that, I'm going to try to use unfamiliar technology, which is always a bit risky, and... Um, do some slides on this tonight. So, on the one hand, while I was uh, assigned the portions of Daniel that I'll be taking up tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday, um, uh, the one thing that did help me is that you've already been doing the book of Daniel, and so you're already familiar with the book of Daniel. And that's even more helpful in the sense that most of what I'm going to be talking about you've already heard, in one sense. Because what you probably have had pointed out to you, or at least I assume you've pointed out to you already, is that there are parallels between the first half of the book of Daniel and the second half of the book of Daniel. Uh, And we'll see that as we move along. So what I would like to do tonight, though, is not to say that someone hasn't covered something in particular as thoroughly as they might have, but I would like to turn back, To Daniel chapter 6 tonight, just to begin and explain a little bit as we go along of why I'm turning to Daniel chapter 6, and let's turn to Daniel chapter 6 and read just a little bit in verse 1, Daniel 6, 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom a 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel, thank you, concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion or fault for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. A hundred and twenty two people. Wait a minute. 122 people involved in civil government who could find no fault in Daniel. Think about that for a moment. You see, we live in a world where dirt can be dug up or manufactured, particularly if you are in uh, the political world, let's say doesn't take a whole lot of digging sometimes. Sometimes it takes a little more. But if you have cloudy stuff in your background, let's say, questionable stuff, well, be assured, someone, sooner or later, can probably find it. But with Daniel, 120-something people who could find no fault in Daniel except in the area of his religion. And it brings me to something that I'd like to stress at the very outset. And that is that there is no question but that the book of Daniel is one of the great prophetic books in all of the Bible. It is not only one of the great ones, it is a key book that has key prophecies that help us to understand much of what will take place yet concerning future things, things that are yet to come, and the Lord's program for his coming and the establishment of his kingdom ultimately upon this planet. Daniel is one of those critical books uh, in that particular area. But you've probably noticed as you've moved through the book thus far, at least to the six chapters you've been in, that it is also an, an, an intensely practical book, isn't it? Just stop and think for a moment. What happens when a governmental administration changes? A change in government administrations. A new administration is ushered in. And then the new administration is ushered in, and the new administration issues executive orders. And those executive orders are not Executive orders that are necessarily friendly to the things of God may even be hostile and opposed to the things of God. Well, that's nothing new, is it? And then you think that Daniel lived through all of these governmental administrations and functioned at the highest levels and was loyal to those to whom he was employed, but was faithful to his God throughout. Now, that's an amazing thing, isn't it, to think about, that not only was he faithful to his God, but ultimately in those different administrations, they recognized him as a faithful civil servant in the governmental positions at which he functioned at very high levels. I say that is nothing short of remarkable. I mean, I remember years ago an old man told me, he says, The thing about politics, if you're clean when you go in, you'll be dirty when you come out. Well, unfortunately, that's often true, isn't it? Too many times. But it wasn't so with Daniel. He wasn't tainted by the things that he had to deal with or the realm in which he had to function. And the very book begins that way, doesn't it, with his refusal to eat the king's food and his purposing in his heart that he would follow faithfully the law of his God, no matter what the cost might be. And there came a time when that cost became very apparent and real, didn't it? So I say from the very outset that those of us who are here as believers in Christ, living in difficult times and under unique circumstances and changes in governmental administrations, we take our first lesson from the book of Daniel that regardless of what the government brings, we can be faithful to our God, faithful to our Lord. We can be loyal in our positions wherever we serve, in our jobs, in our employment, and not compromise the principles of the word of God, and yet serve, and even be looked upon by those whom we serve, who may not be believers at all. And they recognize our loyalty, our trustworthiness, our integrity, which in itself is a witness, isn't it? Because ultimately, if it comes down to it and there does come the question, why are you different? (laughs) Well, we wouldn't certainly say it's because we're so wonderful, would we? No, but we serve someone who is. And so it's an amazing book in that sense. I want to stress that from the very outset, uh, that it's an eminently practical book. It deals with things that are in the realm of higher truth and higher revelation and a greater wisdom than anything that this world has to offer. It's a remarkable book in that sense. I've been struck by the fact that as you move through this book, you begin to enter into a spiritual realm of a world that exists beyond this planet, this earth, this time in which we find ourselves. It's outstanding in that sense. You have the mention of uh, named angelic uh, beings, of Michael, Gabriel and others, and you're lifted above this planet and the governmental powers of this world that we live in to see the throne of the one who ultimately rules in the universe and ultimately will have his throne upon this planet. I was struck by that even by the songs that were chosen tonight. So many of them said something about the throne and the majesty in the kingdom, and that's one of the themes that you find in the book of Daniel, isn't it? And so um, we find that here at the very beginning. Now, uh, I'm going to attempt once again, as I said, to... uh... (laughs) It worked. It's magic. Daniel. (laughs) Now, as you know, um, Daniel... was an exile like Ezekiel. And he rose to this position of authority in in the empire of Babylon and Persia, or as we call them today, Iraq and Iran, lived nearly all his life in Babylon. Uh, His visions and prophecies were concerned largely with the great empires of Bible history, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. He foretold the coming of Christ's entry into Jerusalem. He uh, told detailed key events, that were to take place in the 400 silent years of which our Bible does not speak, and he depicted future events that are still awaiting fulfillment in the coming day of the one who will be known as Antichrist and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find this helpful, and I know that some of this is review, and that's kind of what tonight will be by way of introduction and also review, that if you keep in mind that your Bible in the Old Testament, after you get past the first few historical books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so on, it's not necessarily given in chronological order. So it's helpful to me to find that there are seven books that are connected by history and prophecy that are basically in the same time frame setting. And those seven books, the history is given by Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The prophets... Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and in the book of Daniel, which is both history and prophecy. And so those seven books chronologically fit together, even though you won't find them back-to-back arranged in your Bible like that. Very helpful, uh, I think, to see. Now what I'd like us to think about tonight is what I call the thematic contents of the book of Daniel. So let's think about how the book of Daniel is structured. And when I say the thematic contents, we begin to think about those things that we find in the different chapters and how they uh, compare or parallel with things that are found in the rest of the book. And that's the reason why I said that basically what I'm asked to do in the uh, last chapters of the book in a sense has already been done in the first chapters of the book, just in a different way. And if that's not clear... Uh, trust it will be before we finish uh, the rest of the meetings together. And so when we think of the theme of the book, uh, just the basic structure of how it's put together, there's one thing that's also helpful to remember, that when you come to Daniel chapter 7, 8, and so on, you will find that those chapters are not uh, given in chronological order. And we know that because of the time frame you'll find in the first year of Belshazzar, something happened, and that's taking way back to something that happened probably before even chapter 5. So whenever you find something that's not in true chronological order, when the writer has placed something way over here that actually happened back here, well, you know that he's doing that for a specific purpose. He's arranging his material because he wants to present to you a certain message, And so he doesn't follow the strict chronology. He gives you the visions that he has over here, which actually took place over here. But when you put them together, you see how they tie in. So we remember in chapter one, the refusal to eat the king's impure food and Daniel and his colleagues are vindicated. Now at this point, you simply would move through the book and develop a table of contents or note what the chapters say and how they're put together, but you can't help but when you do it to see the striking parallels between the first half of the book and the second half of the book. So while in chapter 1, the refused to eat the king's impure food, Daniel and his colleagues vindicated, In chapter 6, the refusal to obey the king's command and refrain from praying to God, and Daniel is vindicated. No question, but there's a similarity between those two things. And then, when you come to what takes place next, you have, in chapter 2 and 3, two images. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's dream image, and a king in search of the truth. Think about it. A king who was in search of the truth. Where to find the truth? Which is a remarkable thing to think about in Daniel chapter 2. That this king, well, when the king had the dream, he called in all the experts, didn't he? All his magicians and his sorcerers and his IT department and everybody you see. And, and, and we need to listen I want you to tell me the dream I had. <laughs> no, 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 king. No, no, no. Wait a minute. You got it wrong. You tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no. This is not my first rodeo. Now, this is a very imperfect paraphrase of Daniel, but um, you, you get the message, you see. The king's like, no, no, no. I know you guys. I tell you the dream. You give me something. No. Nah. Tell you what. You tell me what I dreamed. And then you tell me what it means. And if you don't, you're going to pay the price. All of you. And Daniel ultimately is called upon, isn't he? And King, he says, it's not in me. There is a God. And remember what they said, all of his experts. This is something that has to take place. Uh, there's, There's not a God who dwells with flesh. Wait a minute. No, no. I think you got that wrong. Ultimately, there is a God who does with flesh and a God who can reveal truth, a king in search of truth. Interesting. Be that as it may, you remember that the dream image that he had of the different metals and the value of those metals. And so you begin to look at this book as it's put together. And remember, one of the things that happens in the first part is that... um, Nebuchadnezzar had taken the instruments from the temple of God and placed them in his own God's temple, sort of like trophies, putting them on the same level as his God, taking that which was absolute and making it relative. Now, if you don't think there's a message there for the times in which we find ourselves living, making that which is absolute, intended to be the absolute revealed truth of God, and making it relative, no different than anything else. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had done, you see. And so you've got the vision of the colossal image that Nebuchadnezzar had, his dream image. And then in chapter 3, of course... He makes an image, only he doesn't make the image like he sees in the dream because he was told he was the head of gold, so he makes the whole thing of gold. Of course, he's not going to make it of the inferior metals that that were seen in the vision. So two images here. And then you come over and you just jump fast forward, and you come to two visions of beast. Now, we're not making anything of this here. interpretively. we're only observing What's actually in the book? Two visions of beasts, four beast and two beast, which raises the question: Why four beasts here? Why only two beast here? But that's for tomorrow, you see? And my part to have to address, why do we have those different visions and so on like that. And then, of course, two kings. Uh, that are disciplined in this section. The discipline and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar and the writing on the wall and the destruction of Belshazzar. Two kings disciplined in that section. You come over here, there's two writings that are explained. The prophecy in the book of Jeremiah, which is much of the substance of what we have in chapter 9 and ultimately the writing of truth the eventual destruction of the one who is called the king there. And so a little bit of the thematic uh, structure of the book, if you will, and how we begin to put the parts together and look at it in that way. Now, I don't know if that's the one I want. No, it's not the one I want, so I don't want it. Therefore, I go back to that. At least if I leave that up there, whether you're on Facebook Live or here, you don't have to look at my face up there. So you just got the outline, right? So um, it's interesting, too, to begin to think about some of these things in the parallels. So let's just assume, for sake of argument, that over here we're getting something that in one way or another parallels that which is over here. Why tell it twice? Why not just do Daniel 1 through 6 or 1 through 5? You've told it already, and you're done. I'm glad you asked. So, why tell it in a different way? Now, one of the things that is also remarkable about the book of Daniel is that, you go through these different governmental periods of time and there is a sense in which tremendous progress is made. So you start with Nebuchadnezzar, who is a totalitarian, authoritative tyrant, if you will. Yet, at the same time, by the time you get to chapter 6, where we read tonight, and you come to the reign of Darius, the Mede, he was not the totalitarian tyrant that Nebuchadnezzar was, at least not in the same way. Because under Nebuchadnezzar, remember, the king was law. And what the king said, that was law. And we say, well, that's a bad thing. That's not the way a country should be. And so you make progress. And you come to chapter 6 with Darius. Now, it's not the king is law, but the law is king. The writings of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed. And we say that's an advancement, isn't it? That's a good thing now, because even the king has to be held accountable to the law. Well, that is an advancement, isn't it? But what happens when it's not a good law? And what happens when people make laws that violate the conscience of people and the religious conscience toward God? What then, you see? And so while on the one hand it sounds like and is in some sense an advancement, well, in another sense, not so much. Now, is that applicable to the times in which we find ourselves living? What happens when governmental authorities make laws that are not good laws, that are bad laws, and that are laws that violate what the Word of God says and what your conscience towards the Word of God says? That's very problematic, isn't it? So you see this progression, and yet... Degression that takes place throughout the book of Daniel as well the other thing is when we begin to think about why give it to us in two different ways um, I'm, I'm borrowing now on what you've already learned from the book as you've studied it uh, over however many weeks you have but you will remember that in this particular image um, Nebuchadnezzar sees this colossal colossal uh, vision you see, of this ginormous statue of these different metals, gold and silver and copper or bronze and iron and so on, right? Now, you have to realize, too, that at this time, Daniel lived in uh, Babylon, which was an advanced civilization. Babylon was known Or one of the seven wonders of the world the hanging gardens of babylon now you're not going to get this in the history books but you didn't pay for this course anyway so you can take this or leave it but i'm going to give you the colloquial version the low country version from down where i am in the south of how this came down all right so uh nebuchadnezzar married a country girl and you you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl, you see. So she was a country girl, and she liked outdoorsy stuff. So Neb says, well, I'm going to make you these fabulous gardens, so you'll be in the country while you're right here in Babylon. Won't that be wonderful? And thus the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. As I said, you won't find that stated exactly that way in the history books, but, but be that as it may, it was a fantastic civilization. Advancements in science, advancements in literature, all sorts of advanced technology and civilization. It wasn't all bad in that sense. And so whatever the image was, now I don't know, well, I don't want to belabor it too much, but... My wife and I had the privilege of going to Israel in 2005, and we made a little trip afterwards, two, three days in uh, London. And one of my big disappointments was that we were just, I found out we were just a short distance, walking distance from the British Museum. And I thought, British Museum, man. I didn't know that at that point they had moved the one of the world's largest uh, collections of an- ancients manuscripts biblical manuscripts and stuff they had moved them from that location so we decided to go to the british museum i had one hour to do the british museum okay which is forget about it you know i mean you walk in the british museum and right there in front of you, the first thing you see rosetta stone huh, there it is i mean not a copy the real deal you know so what are you going to do in one hour well i went to the near east section and i i went to the uh, part that had stuff to do with assyria and and all of that and I'm going to tell you, some of those lions that stood almost as tall as this roof, the carvings of that stuff, it was amazing to look at it. You know, in, in, in the land of Israel, at one place we, where we went, the Romans had so many columns and pillars. Some of these columns and pillars that they had, it took one ship to transport one column. And you'd see hundreds of them. Fantastic. So whatever this statue was that Nebuchadnezzar saw, it wasn't some simple Gumby, you know, that you made out of clay or something. Gumby may be dating me. Some of you won't know what that is. You can Google it and find out. Okay, so it was some fantastically beautiful-looking thing, you see, that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And then you remember that what ends that statue is that this stone that is cut out without hands comes down. So you've got the contrast between this marvelous sculptured statue and this rough stone cut out without hands that smashes the image to pieces at its feet. But when you come over to this section now, if you could take that what we have here corresponds with this, if these four metals that you're found in Nebuchadnezzar's image correspond with these four beasts, and we'll get into that a bit tomorrow, well, that's quite a different view, isn't it? Because now you're looking at not what a man thought of all these kingdoms and empires. Now you're looking at it from a different view altogether. That while there might have been these fantastic advancements in civilization and science and culture and all the rest, that behind it they were like warlike, rapacious, violent horrendous, monstrosities, beast. That was the other side of government from a totally different perspective. So you begin to put these things together in contrast as you move along uh, through the book, which is a wonderful thing to do. Now, one of the other things I want to mention tonight, and it's very brief. Well, it may be very brief. I wasn't told. uh, Let me just see. How do I now exit the, Josh will help me? Thank you. Oh, who's that? (laughs) Yes, okay. So um, we're going to rely upon your remembrance of chapter 6, which happens to be Daniel and the den of lions. And you remember that throughout this next section, which I'll be dealing with, primarily chapters 7 through 12. Uh, But beginning at chapter 6, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to backtrack, is is there's this animal motif that is woven through these particular chapters, beginning in chapter 6, if you will, with the lions. Not only the lions. You remember the law went forth And an ominous thing happened. Now, I don't know exactly how they approached Darius in the exact words, except to say that they came to him and said, King, you know, if we're going to unify this country, we can't have everybody just practicing their own religion in the old kind of way they, they want to do, you see. We really need to unify this place. And so we ought to have everybody worshiping the same thing, the same God. How will we ever do that? Who will they ever... Express their loyalty to, well, King, you would be the one you see. So we'll make a law that nobody prays to any other God, but you will be the God that they pray to. That was an ominous thing, wasn't it? And if anyone does pray to anyone else, well, be cast into the den of lions. And ultimately, that's where Daniel is cast. And you see something else woven through this book of Daniel, don't you? I mean, it's an amazing story, as I said from the beginning in Nebuchadnezzar, a king in search of the truth, and a king who comes from chapter 2, and Daniel telling him, there is a God who can reveal truth to you. To a God in chapter 3, of whom those three Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah said, our God is able to deliver. But if he doesn't, we'll still not bow down. But our God is able to deliver, which is remarkable in one sense, isn't it? Because when you come to chapter 20, uh, uh, when you come to chapter 6 and verse 20, the king comes to the den and says, Daniel Servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? You see, one of the lessons throughout the book of Daniel wasn't only uh, what what Daniel had to go through and what his friends had to go through. What about the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar? And the eventual mercy of God that restored that man to his right mind? And the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar that is recorded in chapter 4? of how God's mercy dealt with him, when he acted like and was made to act like an animal and eat grass like an ox. Because a man, a human being without God, well, he's nothing more than an animal and will act upon animalistic instincts, which is exactly what you have now in chapter 6, isn't it? Men who would make a law, and that law, that if you don't pray to the king, that if you violate your own conscience, well, our law will have you placed into a den of lions. And so the king comes, and Daniel answers the king in verse 21 and says, My God hath sent an angel. And as I said at the beginning, it's remarkable how many times in this book, your eyes are open to a spiritual world that is beyond the physical world that we dwell in, this realm, to realize, do you believe in angels? Do you believe in the ministry of angels? Well, Daniel did. And he said, my king... God hath sent his angels and shut the mouths of the lions. Now, there's one thing about lions. Lions, you see, well, lions don't read laws, do they? (laughs) They don't read books. Now this is nothing against you folks out here who have dogs. I have nothing against dogs. We have had dogs in the past, but I must preface what I say, because you'll think I'm not a dog person, okay? But as much as you love your dog and think he has human instincts, he doesn't. (laughs) He's not as smart as you think he is, (laughs) okay? Bottom line is he's a dog. He will act like a dog. And if you leave a steak in a place where he can get to it and you're not looking, well, he will eat that steak and he will not feel remorse. He will not put on sackcloth and ashes and repent and mourn. He may look like it. And you say, oh, look at him. Doesn't he look like he's so sad for what he's done? Put another steak there and try him again. (laughs) <laughs> you'll see <laughs> he's a dog okay and lions lions don't read laws you see lions do what lions do and so on the one hand I want you to notice this picture now because this struck me the other day when I was thinking about it you got Daniel you got the lions and you've got an angel that shut the mouths the lions. What stood between Daniel and those lions doing what lions do? A spiritual force, a higher law than the law of the Medes and Persians. And without that spiritual force, people, human beings, give themselves over to animalistic behavior. And we see it in the world all around us, don't we? Human beings acting like animals because they don't have that spiritual force that prevents the animal behavior from doing what animal behavior does. What is it in you? You know, sometimes I think to myself, I know I'm not everything I should be. (laughs) I know that better than anybody. I know I'm not everything I should be. But I'll tell you something else. I know I'm not as bad as I could be. And I know it's not because of me. The Spirit of God must live in me. With all my failures and all my shortcomings, yet... There's something in me that prevents me from doing a whole lot of things that I most likely and assuredly would do if it were not for a spiritual power that dwells within because I'm a believer in Christ. Remarkable to think about what a picture you have here. Now, I don't know whether those political... Folks, Daniel's associates, believed in angels or not. But they certainly had a different experience, didn't they? When they got tossed into the den of lions. And so, men acting like animals who would throw a man to the lions for his religious convictions, repeated down through history, is it not? And so, a higher law above the animal world that could control even the lions in the lion's den. Interesting to think, at least in my mind it is. And so you, you would find if we were to look back at the structure again tonight that that animal theme will continue uh, throughout the next section of this. Not only that, while in chapter 6 you have men acting like animals, when you come to chapter 7 and chapter 8, you're going to find animals with some human qualities, a sort of a monstrosity, if you will. But we leave that for tomorrow. Now, I have no idea what time to stop or time, was supposed to stop. So, keep rolling. Don't don't roll. Shut her down. Uh, what's your choice now? Just asking a question. You've got um, you've got some time. Math was never my strong suit. So you you've got till ten o'clock in the morning to read. At least Daniel chapter seven, chapter eight and chapter 9, which will be our portion for tomorrow. We'll deal with chapter 10 through 12 as one unit, and that will enable me, Lord willing, to be able to get through the assigned portions that we have, uh, have before us. So if you haven't read those yet, it'd be good to have them fresh in your mind uh, because there are some... Uh, there are some complexities. You might say in certain parts we'll be diving into the deep end of the pool, but uh, we'll try not to flounder around too much and try to give a little help as we look at some of the prophecies that uh, and visions that Daniel have that lead us on into the times of the future. But before we close, I'm not sure how we'll close. I guess I'll close in prayer. Is that acceptable? Um, I want you to think again about that very theme at the beginning of the book of Daniel in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar that comes back around full circle with the writings of truth in the end of the book and the revelations that he's given there through the visions. And that is, there is a God who is able to reveal truth to us and to give us insight into what is going to take place in the coming days. And I won't be here to give you a specific date or a time for the fulfillment of some of these things, except to say that with absolute certainty, that which Daniel had before us historically and in the visions and dreams and all the rest is absolutely certain to come to fulfillment. And we have that on the authentication not only of Daniel, but of the words of the Lord Jesus himself quoted Daniel's prophecy so we'll look forward to that for tomorrow this is a little bit of an introduction tonight and we'll continue Lord willing tomorrow uh, in the book our father we thank you for the revealed truth of the Word of God we thank you for the great reality that if you spoke from heaven tonight you wouldn't say anything you haven't already said in this book help us to lean hard upon that in the times in which we find ourselves living what a lesson we learned from the life of Daniel how he could function in that society with those totalitarian kings and those dictators and yet remain faithful to you and loyal to you and to his job, his employment, his civil service, if you will. It's a remarkable thing, Lord, and yet we know it can be done. And we, we just pray that as we come together to think about these spiritual things, the realization that there is a world beyond that which we can see. The reality of another world that exists beyond this, that spiritual realm, that angelic place of principalities and powers and spiritual forces and even wickedness in high places. What lessons we can learn. So help us, Lord, we pray. Encourage our hearts, encourage your people as we come together to concentrate on spiritual things. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.